The title for today's talk is The Non-Stick Mind. It's another way of saying, can we develop a mind which is like the, this uh, Teflon-covered frying pans that I call non-stick frying pans? Mind that does not attach, stick, cling to what comes its way. And when I say attach, sting, or cling, I always, like the Buddha did, have in mind as well the flip side, that is the rejecting, the pushing away. So the mind that fails to, does not indulge in sticking or pushing away. And yet, it gets fully involved with the material it receives. Just like the frying pans, you know. The Teflon doesn't interfere with the cooking on the country. It interferes with the sticking and burning. The case for using non-stick frying pans is, can be very obvious, uh, regardless, of course, of what school of cooking mentality you belong to. But for somebody has, with primitive cooking abilities like me, <laughs> it's very helpful and obvious. The case for the non-stick mind perhaps requires some elaboration, and this is why I take time this morning to talk about that. Requires some elaboration unless we have already experienced the pain, the burn that comes from the stickiness. Just like with the frying pans in a way. I, I know I like non-stick frying pans because I've tried the others. And by golly, I burned a lot of stuff. I like a, a quote that uh, Joseph Goldstein makes in, in this book of his a few years ago called One Dharma. He quotes uh, from somebody who came to one of his retreats. And this person said to Joseph, you know, Joseph, suffering is like rope burn. You know, when you try to hold a rope in your hands and the rope is pulled by something very powerful at the other end and you keep holding tightly and all that you do is burn your hands. It, it hurts like, like hell. Because this rope is a rope that is too powerful, cannot be stopped. And so, 
to understand fully what this talk is about, we need to have had this experience of Rob Byrne firsthand, not with a material rope, that may too, but really what matters is with a rope in our mind that we keep holding on to. Connect the holding, the clinging to the rope with the burning in the hands, because we, you know, many of us, this mind is incredible. We, we may have done that a thousand times. And yes, we know we are holding. Yes, we know we are burning. But we haven't made the connection. We need to make the connection between the burning in our hands and the, the sorry, the, the holding of the rope, the holding of the rope in our hands, hands, the burning in our hands and the burning in our hearts. So, not to stay on generalities, let me go down the list of some of the things we tend to cling to and get scorched up as a result. Key to understand the problem is to remember as I go down the list, that everything that we try to hold on, everything is impermanent. Even our own life is impermanent, of course. And that's the problem, because our clinging is in vain. It's in desperation of trying to avoid the inevitable. In this consumer society, of course, preeminent among the things that we cling to are the things, the stuff that's offered for sale, stuff we buy, stuff we select by looking at that which appeals to our senses, by looks, by touch, by sound, by taste, smell, or even by the thoughts stirred up by the promotional material. I mean, it, it, more so than that, yeah, more so than anything else, I think, is a promotional <laughs> sort of things that keep ringing in our head. We can see that with our grandchildren, how they go for the latest that they so advertised. I mean, it's, it's irresistible. For me, my mind, thank God, is a little dull, so it doesn't <laughs> react so quickly. <laughs> and. And very often, and this is the case I'm referring to, our purchases have absolutely no relationship to a usefulness, to utility, even eventual use that things may have. But everything to do with boosting our ego, which of course the promotional jingles tap on very effectively. A telltale sign for this ego involvement is when we get very excited about things based on their scarcity. 
We couldn't care less about this or that item. Oh, but it's scarce. It, it must be important to get it, even if it costs a fortune. Whether it's a wine, a designer outfit, whatever, a doll, whatever, for our kids, whatever. Whenever scarcity is an, an element there, then the eye is surely at work. Not, of course, that the eye only works through scarcity, but that's a, a clear sign. The, the more common way in which the eye works is by commandeering any preference, no matter how legitimate the preference may have been originally. The eye commandeers its preference and uses it to enhance itself. I got this. I got that. Again, I can hear our grandchildren talking to each other about this, you know, and competing in this area. And, and we, we do the same with people, by the way, you know. And of course, there's no problem, just as there's a problem in having the right things, there's no problem in, in connecting with people, absolutely not. In, 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 the, in the whole spectrum of interactivity, from the social to the sexual, to the caring, to the being cared for, sure, this is quite appropriate. The question, once again, is whether this search for this particular person is genuine or has been preempted by the eye, who may, for instance, be only interested in collecting celebrities. So all that matters is to be a celebrity or sexual contests. These sexual conquests, this is which has been, in my times anyway, the very mild, the very much the preserve of men. It's not so sexually discriminated nowadays. I mean, I'm not going to make a complete list. Another area, of course, that we can look into is inner sensations. Searching for beautiful, rewarding, wanted inner sensations. And yes, we can do that in this in retreat, very much so. more often than not, what comes up is unpleasant sensations. A pain here, a pain there, a discomfort there. And, and then, instead of pulling, clinging to, we push them away. As I said, it's a flip side. The same sort of process. And once again, the eye fabricating the victim through that. Not the victor, but the victim. I, I was taken by a, a, an article I read recently in the Shambhala Sun. 
and let me share that with you. It's about a songwriter who I, I don't know anything about, but maybe that just showed my ignorance. The name is Amanda Palmer. And um, she goes to IMS, I think, to sit, but some similar place to sit. Here's what he sa she says. When I meditate, I do not have a hard time letting go of films, grudges, or grocery lists. But I can't let go of music. A song is different. A song has special status, doesn't it? Let me clarify. I don't mean a pre-existing song but a glimmer of inspiration, a little tuneful embryo waiting to be born in a full-fledged ballad, an idea. I'm a songwriter. I need those moments bad. The songwriter in me struggles like mad when meditating. The rules of my conditioned art mind say nothing must stand in the way of develop, uh, developing idea. When inspiration calls, I follow. If I should be struggling with anything in my life, it should be taking that impossibly disciplined step from thought to pen to paper, from seed to full song. I watch this mental boxing match take place with interest. In one corner sits the meditator, who calmly suggests that good ideas will linger if they are worthwhile. Here, here. <laughs> I said that. <laughs> and so, what if they don't? The songs are not happening, only sitting is happening. In the other corner paces the crazed composer with a mind specifically cultivated to jump from image to word to melody in an effort to create a work of art that will move her fellow humans. And a little further down she writes, the problem with meditation, I thought, is that it unlocks the door to inspiration. And the problem with me is that I am in love with my inspiration. The match was on, and the artist knocked out the meditator with a single left hook. <laughs> I let the singing in my head continue at full volume. I think I even let it out of my mouth occasionally and scared some squirrels. Presumably she was walking outdoors. Then I returned to the center where I broke my no writing and reading vows <laughs> and jolted and jotted the whole song down. Barely edited from that moment, it is now called Delia, and it wound up being a key track 
on my band's last album. Very beautiful that she shares that. Uh, my take on this is that the last line gives Amanda away. It appears that it's not so much that the artist knocked out the meditator with a left hook, but that the eye knocked out the rest of Amanda. You know, I mean, without this last sentence, well, okay, maybe it just stays as an experience and then she can go back. But the, once the eye takes over, forget it. All the rest of you, all the meditators sitting in that corner, irrelevant. I mean, the eye, or in the Buddhist terminology, Mara, will, will dispose of that meditator in no time. Okay, going back to the general topic now, leaving Amanda in peace. In all of this is a sway of our culture instigating us and prioritizing our pursuit of desire. To which, by the way, Amanda does respond some way. Understandable, of course understandable. We are in this culture. But this relentless pursuit of desire leads inevitably to the enthronement of me and mine. And this inevitably is followed by the rope burn, since not of that can really stay the way we want it. Whatever it is, aging, competition, whatever, takes our desires away. And so, we end up scorched up. Let me go into another foray. This is one, I know some five years ago, so I shared that in a talk. Some of you heard it. It's okay. Uh, this is about a, a writer called Anatole France, a French writer. He was uh, the love of my father, who wrote books about him. And so Anatole France, in a way, he was, he was called at home uh, Abuelito France grandfather of France. He's, he's, in a way, my spiritual grandfather. I say that and I feel some tears coming up. I, as I think of 
of Anatole France, I think of my father, of course, who was very much in Anatole France camp, naturally. In fact, this quote I got from reading my father, my, a book by my father. And the friends, I mean, his, he died quite a long time ago. He received the Nobel Prize in 1890. And sometime, beginning of last century, I suppose, he finds himself, he is in Paris, he lived in Paris. Actually, strange enough, he did something very unusual for him. He went to a political rally in Paris. And he gets lost there a little bit. Can't find his way, police is charging. He gets into this doorway, happens to be the Museum Guimet. It's a museum dedicated to the Buddha. Wow. So he writes an article about that. He calls the Buddha Sakyamuni. He says, and I quote bits and pieces, Sakyamuni was the best of men. He was both sage and saint. But his wisdom was not made for the active races of Europe. Today we say of the West, but this is a European-centered world, of course, a hundred years ago. The U.S. hardly made a little blip. <laughs> but his wisdom was not made for the active races of Europe. For these human families so strong in the sense of life. The sovereign remedy which he offers for universal evil, letting go, that's really what this, this means, the sovereign remedy is unsuited to our temperament. He invites us to renunciation, we desire action. He teaches us to desire nothing, and in us, desire is stronger than life. Sakyamuni, he says, came not for us. By him, we shall not be saved. He's nonetheless the friend and counselor of the best and wisest. To those who know how to listen to him, he offers great and solemn lessons. I wasn't prepared to feel so, so much emotion around. But it's obviously a, a distinction between my father and myself, and a very loving distinction. So, whom are we going to listen to? Sakyamuni, the best of men and wisest counselor, or the dictates of Western culture. 
take a pick. One last item I want to cover here is views. Just as we cling to things and people, we certainly cling to views. And of course, it's very important, essential, that we have views, particularly in our roles as citizens. This is uh, important, absolutely essential. We need to embrace and champion for uh, the views that we find wholesome and disapprove of the views that we find unwholesome, of course. It's not in question. Come November, you better do vote for whatever you believe you should vote to. And don't wait till November, even before that. If you are so inclined, please be active. And be active for what? For peace, not for war. That's the key, of course. What is in question is the ease with which the views we embrace get preempted by the eye. A position that may have started as a totally appropriate choice becomes a contest with I as a scorekeeper. Did Hillary win? Did Obama win? And we take this personally. If we do that, we've fallen beyond the appropriate views into the embrace of the I. When we are prompted not to keep score, not to attach to view, sometimes it may sound as a call to be indifferent. I don't know whether you've ever heard of Noam Chomsky. He's a professor at MIT. a superb linguist, (coughs) one of the best, and also a political pundit, really smart and wise, and uh, I admire his (coughs) positions in politics uh, very much so. Of course, may not be your case, but I'm just talking about how I feel. So the other day, not long ago, maybe a couple of months ago, I was watching a TV program, I can't remember what. It may have involved Amy Goodman, because I watch Amy Goodman very much, but I'm not even sure of that. (laughs) Somebody was interviewing, talking to Noam Chomsky. And he, he, she, whoever asked him, asked him about equanimity. Ah, my ears pricked up. (laughs) (laughs) My omnis... 
omniscient person who knows everything is going to define equanimity. <laughs> and what did he say? He said, and I, I, I wrote it down on a piece of paper because, in fact, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> he said, it's like feeling it's all the same to me. Wow! <laughs> there goes my, my icon. <laughs> I, I, I went to the dictionary and so on, but then I realized, I mean, there's no point in me trying to compete with Noam Chomsky. <laughs> he knows it much better. It's not a question of defining words. It's a question of how we take it. And uh, indeed, I think Chomsky took it as equanimity is usually taken. I don't give a darn. I'm indifferent. And it's one of the definitions in the dictionary, yes. But what I'm disappointing in, disappointed in is that Chomsky and many others, of course, can only see these three possibilities. Clinging to, pushing away, or I don't give a hoot. What about the fourth possibility? which is really the Teflon cover frying pan. Oop. Perhaps the word equanimity can be in dispute, but the word the Buddha uses in his language, upeka. Upeka means a steadiness, not indifference, a steadiness in the face of circumstances completely different from indifference. Involves no clinging, no ego involvement to either outcome, and at the same time a full involvement of our being in the process. Of course, there are different readings to these words, but this is the fourth possibility the upeka that gets us involved, but no clinging, and therefore no rope burn, no suffering. Not looking what I can get from the process, but at what can I give to the process. And so on. The whole point of clinging, whether to objects, to senses, to views, to whatever, has very little to do with the objects, the people, the senses, the views, whatever, and everything to do with giving birth to the eye. In fact, the basic teaching of Buddha, dependent arising, 
points out the steps from the clinging to creating the eye. The eye being the clinger, the clinging place, the clinger, and there you are. And, and the eye having been created is not going to be forever, in fact, even before we die, the eye will, will die many times, <laughs> many times, because of all the things that will not work out for us. It's like death. And so we suffer. So, so much for the clinging mind. What about the non-clinging mind? Before, before I talk about that, let me just take just a, a moment to compare the talk today with the talks in the last two days, you know. In the previous two talks, yesterday and the day before, I tried to communicate to you that the extraordinary sense of freedom that's available, that's possible, through the practice. Even tiny little bits, glimpses of it, and sometimes a big open, sometimes closing down again, opening again, whatever. But this is a tremendous, so momentous thing occurring. Compare with that, today's talk may seem very ordinary pedestrian, just focus on letting go. One might say, no big deal. But listen, letting go is a big deal. All the other big deals, end of suffering, liberation of mind, everything I've been, I talked about in the previous day, is not possible unless we drop the clinging. We let go of clinging. This is from a Tibetan teacher I don't know much about, but I was touched by what he says, Zigar Kontrul Rinpoche. Some people, he says, uh, this is from Buddha Dharma, recent Buddha Dharma. Some people might think that without attachment, life would lose its juice. We are so habituated to the usual ups and downs, worries, stresses, and anxieties that we worry that if th these go missing, so would all the love, care, enjoyment, and passions we experience. From this standpoint, life without con conflicting emotions surging and churning all the time may seem a bit alien. But the boredom we fear is really just a state of unfulfilled desires. The flip side of the excitement and entertainment we habitually seek. It's still wholly within the realm of attachments focused on getting or not getting, possessing or not possessing, keeping or not keeping, increasing or not increasing, 
Is there any true enjoyment on that? Imagine craving absolutely nothing from the world. Imagine cutting the invisible strings that so painfully bind us. What would that be like? Imagine the freedoms that come from the ability to enjoy things without, without having to acquire them, own them, possess them. Try to envision a relationship based on acceptance and genuine care rather than expectation. Imagine feeling completely satisfied and content with your life just as it is. Who wouldn't want that? This is the enjoyment of non-attachment. Oh, this is the enjoyment of letting go. Ajahn Chah is famous for this that he said about letting go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. Of course, truly, this is easier said than done, naturally. I have seen myself going through stages of letting go, and still often enough I run into my old clinging tendency. Only that now, when I cling, it becomes a learning opportunity. opportunity. I can focus the mind on the rope burn that comes with the clinging and on the relief that comes with the letting go. To offer a variation on Ajahn Chah's dictum, I come to notice directly a big pain, sorry, a big pain from a big clinging. A little pain from a little clinging, and no pain from no clinging. And so, I learned directly the consequences of this stickiness of mind. Further than that, it doesn't really work for us to will our mind to let go. 
In other words, letting go as an act of, of willful will, if I may say so, does not lead to transformation. It's just, we don't go, but the rest of us hasn't been in that process somehow. For letting go to be transformative, our whole mind has to be ready and accompany the transformation. For better or for worse, nobody has yet come, although it may happen with technology as it is, come with a Teflon equivalent to lay on the mind and make it non-stick. <laughs> The non-stick mind results, results eventually from opening ourselves through cultivating patience and letting ourselves, letting in the gift of freedom. The Buddha is very clear on this. He's talking about the monks in one of his sutras. And he's, he's talking to the monk, sorry, about letting go. And he says, and I quote, Now, a monk doesn't have the power or might to say, May my mind be released from defilements, from kilesas, I suppose, through lack of clinging or sustenance today or tomorrow or the next day. But when the time has come, his mind is released. In other words, the Buddha is expressing his great trust on the power of the practice. Just, just be with the practice be ready to respond and let go. But don't try to force yourself to let go because if you're not there fully in letting go, it's not going to happen. And so, for us, for most of us, the time does come as a result of the practice. Let's sit for a couple of minutes, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.